bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used as sources for our show, and aside from me, you'll be hearing from the individual to my right here, my housekeeper and co-host, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. As you may have guessed from certain subtle changes, Bowden Sickle is reformatting a bit for 2023, uh, tightening things up a bit. Sort of like a New Year's diet. Yes, but hopefully more successful. Um, rather than the uh, one long 45-minute show th that you'd been streaming monthly this year, you'll be getting two uh, shorter episodes twice monthly, each of about half the uh, length of the old longer show. Shorter shows, like the patrons receive, but they get three, not two. Right. Um, we've shared a few of these in the past, the marvelous and rare episodes, little snippets from books of curiosities compiled in the 1800s, and uh, also uh, single-topic shows like tonight's, which uh, it comes from an old newspaper account. And there will be one on a Viking funeral, and another on uh, curious epitaphs found in cemeteries, and uh, so on. I'll be reading some ghost stories and some folk tales. And, and you'll be closing each episode with a poetic reading, a bit of verse. Which was not my idea. Carswell's Corner, I'm calling it. I'm fine doing it, and some of the poems are actually clever enough, but they're all so morbid. I guess I've been selecting the very best. It's just not really my thing. It should be something like Ridenauer's Corner, read by Mrs. Garswell. Well, uh, yes, that trips off the tongue. I know you like your alliteration and dark things. Murder Suicide and, and dismemberment. Mm. Yes, uh, I do, particularly if it's rhymed. Anyway, I appreciate you wanting to give me a special role. Well, we'll see where it all goes. What about your news? Yes, uh, I am writing another book this year. The publisher of my Krampus volume is interested in a sort of sequel. I shouldn't say too much about it yet, but uh, because that project will be occupying much of my time, the 2023 shows will have to be less research-intensive. It's also always good to freshen things up. Isn't that what you're supposed to do when a new year starts? I suppose. I don't think anything rhymes with dismemberment, by the way. No? Well, what about, uh... C? Well, uh... This is a dead air. People don't want to hear... Temperament? Temperament. Temperament? Dismemberment? Yeah. A temperament for dismemberment. Uh, a sentiment for dismemberment. A sentimental dismemberment. Dismembermental dismemberist? A sentimentalist dismemberist? I think we're rapping. Yes, we are absolutely rappers now. And uh, with that under our... Belts. I, I think we can uh, more or less just start the episode, which is 
Episode 102, P.T. Barnum's Magnificent Museum Fire. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to uh, further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and am currently working on a related volume. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including additional episodes. I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. For tonight's show, I'll be reading from a newspaper, a story from July 14th, 1865, which was published in the New York Times. It's about the great fire which had destroyed P.T. Barnum's American Museum the day before. Uh, Though, uh, one reason I'm reading the article is the beautiful job it does cataloging the museum's holdings. It may be confusing at first, as the American Museum was an example, um, albeit an extremely large one, of uh, something called a dime museum, rather unlike uh, today's museums. Dime Museum has resembled the uh, Cabinet of Curiosity collections kept by uh, certain aristocrats, but unlike these, were open to anyone with a spare dime. Items were jumbled together more for the uh, purpose of show than any sort of a, a systematic education of the public. In Barnum's case, his museum also displayed live animals, some of which escaped into the streets of Manhattan during the fire. It also housed a theater presenting melodramas of the day or appearances by special people like the diminutive Tom Thumb or the Swedish giant who would later travel with Barnum's Circus or uh, performances by Jenny Lind, the singer promoted by Barnum during wildly popular international tours in which she was billed as the Swedish Nightingale. I wanted to incorporate a recording of her as a background element And she was rumored to have recorded something for Edison, but if so, the recording appears to have been lost. So instead, at the end of the show, you'll hear an old recording by another artist of a song made popular by Lind. Well, here we go. Disastrous fire. Total destruction of Barnum's American Museum. Nine other buildings burned to the ground. Great excitement in the city. 30,000 people in the streets. Pickpockets in the crowd, accidents and incidents. The fire, which yesterday destroyed Barnum's American Museum, while greatly injuring and materially impoverishing its enterprising and public spirited proprietor, did damage that neither time nor money can replace. Almost in a twinkling of an eye, the dirty, ill shaped structure, filled with specimens so full of suggestion and of merit, passed from our gaze, and its like cannot soon be seen again. I'm going to skip ahead and around a bit, just because the original article is 7,000 words, so it's a bit abbreviated what we're hearing. At noon of yesterday, the fierce tooth of fire pierced and destroyed the museum. 
In the basement was an immense tank used at times for the accommodation of whales or hippopotami, around which stood huge cages for the tenement of wild beasts. Machinery, gas works, and water butts filled the rest of the room, above which was the ground floor, on which visitors first entered from the street. Here were several offices of the ticket sellers and sub-cashier, in the rear being a series of round holes, looking through which one could be taken into the very heart of king's palaces, or sail on the Venetian canals, or fight with the grand army of the emperor. Passing upstairs, broad and easy of ascent, the first floor was reached. Gazing placidly down upon the coming visitor stood the largest elephant that the civilization of the 19th century has yet known. Nearby, visitors encounter a refreshment stand and a mammoth barrel organ whose volumes of harmony greatly pleased the youngsters and mystified many who were older. A fortune teller who knew much less than she pretended to tell occupied a little room just beyond, and a one-armed, one-legged soldier from the Army of the Potomac offered his scales at the low price of whatever you please to give him. In the center of the room was an immense tank, full 25 feet in diameter. In this tank were two whales imported from the coast of Labrador, whose sportive plunges and animated contests of affection afforded constant amusement to the hundreds of spectators, and a pregnant contrast to the fearful death by roasting which they soon thereafter met. Across the further end of the room was a narrow platform on which sat a wonderful and fearfully made fat girl, and we are pleased to learn that she is alive and well, although terribly tried by the heat. The phrenologists also occupied this platform, at one end of which was placed a large armchair for the Nova Scotian giantess, Miss Swan, an exceedingly tall and graceful specimen of longitude. In an adjoining room were the glassworks, beautiful and ingenious specimens of human handiwork and genius, a steam engine working made entirely of glass was on exhibition there, and deservedly attracted a great deal of attention. But of all the attractions in the museum, perhaps the waxen figures of our 19th century notables were the greatest. There was Napoleon with a squint eye, Victoria with a wry neck, Tom Thumb and wife with baby Kennedy, Jeff Davis in petticoats, and the Siamese twins. On the other side of the room, in a glass case, were Christ and his disciples, and a collection of moving figures representing a dying chief with a rattling, wheezing breast, surrounded by a host of weeping, head-moving sympathizers. Leading from the large hall of this floor on the north side was a long room mainly devoted to the aquaria. These were at least forty large cases neatly constructed of marble, iron, and glass, in which fish from every ocean, river, and lake were kept. An electric eel six feet long divided the attention of the juveniles with an alligator who ate ducks and yearned for babies. Turtles, too, of infinite variety, stretched their mud-accustomed necks far up above their tortoise shells, and doubtless wondered if it would ever rain again. On the third floor was the entrance of the parquet of the famous lecture room. A large and well-appointed theater was this place, nothing more and nothing less. Plays and players were there, actors and actresses, dancers and pantomimists, scenery and footlights, music and paint. Everything that any other theater had, had this. 
Around the walls were cases of butterflies, of various insects, of curious cuttings in wood and carvings in ivory, of Chinese balls and American whistles made of pig's tails, of puzzles for young people and curiosities for older ones, of spears and clubs from the islands of the sea, of shark's teeth and whale's jaws, skeletons of snakes, of monkeys and reptiles. And who can forget, be he man or boy, the startling effect produced upon him when first he came upon the three men of Egypt, whose blackened skulls and grinning, ghastly faces stuck offensively out from the top of the funeral wrappings. These dead men, or women as the case may be, have been dead any reasonable number of thousands of years, whose gay and festive lives were spent perhaps in the halls of the royal pharaoh. We can see in our mind's eye the awful indignation experienced when the vandal hand of intrusive Yankees pulled from the dust-covered shelves the entombed mummified remains, and rudely tore off the coverings from the face, playfully pulled the lock or two of hair on the top of the cracking skull, and finally shipped them off to Barnum. How they must have groaned as the old ladies looking on uttered, Oh Lord, and the young boys expressed a desire to furnish them with spitball eyes, and how have they wondered whether they would be able at the day of universal resurrection to find their friends in Egypt at a moment's notice. Poor perturbed spirits, perhaps they have settled all these points and were resting secure in the promise of some reunion with their kin, only to be rudely awakened from their ease by the startling cry of fire. They are gone, and though they may have walked with Moses or danced with Miriam or feasted with Pharaoh, they are no longer preserved, but powdered mummies, and the sacred dust of Egypt now mingles with the dirt of Broadway and the cinders of Barnum's. Monkeys in all imaginable attitudes, stuffed and waxed and furnished with curiously wrought glass eyes, sacred white cows filled with hay, monstrous turtles varnished and stuffed, snakes of enormous length and camels with humps, zebras with the traditional 365 stripes, lions with shaggy manes, and tigers with beautiful skins. All sorts and kinds of African, Asiatic, and European creatures have been lost. And then we're on the fourth floor for another live exhibit. On the door above was The Happy Family, a collection of sassy monkeys, subdued dogs, meek rats, fat cats, plump pigeons, sleepy owls, prickly porcupines, gay guinea pigs, crowing cocks, hungry hounds, big monkeys, little monkeys, monkeys of every degree of tail, old, grave, gray monkeys, young, rascally, mischievous monkeys, middle-aged monkeys, and a great many miserable mangy monkeys. These animals and other creatures may have been happy, but they didn't smell nicely. They doubtless lived respectably, but their antics were not pleasant to look at. And, to tell the truth, they frequently fought fiercely and were badly beaten for it. However, they are gone, all burned to death, roasted whole with stuffing au natural, and, in view of their lamentable end, we may well say, peace to their ashes. And then, in describing another display area, and beside this was a collection of iron cubes supposed to have fallen in Massachusetts during a hailstorm, several pairs of handcuffs used on the slave ship Echo, pistols and knives of celebrated murderers, and a case of snakes. Huge boa constrictors, 30 feet long and proportionally thick, 
very fond of rabbits and sheep, lay upon the floor of the cage. Smaller but equally unpleasant snakes hung about the perches, and a whole family of little fellows swarmed and wiggled about the warm stovepipe in the center. These could not have been saved in any way. Their mortal coils were heated quickly, their cages burned, but it is probably a correct supposition that the hot breath of flame suffocated them before they could reach the ground and join the other reptiles on the lower tier. Out of this vast collection, nothing of value was saved. A few stuffed birds are in the hands of fellows who fancied them, but we hear of nothing else. The wax figures ran down to the lower floor, but of course their fat was all in the fire, and they but added to the fury of the flames. All is gone, and nothing saved. Mr. W.B. Harrison, the extemporaneous and comic singer, had some adventures in his attempts to escape. He reports that while in his dressing room he heard considerable noise on Broadway, and thinking it to be merely a fireman's diversion, he went to look out the window, and in this found great difficulty, so dense was the smoke beneath the stage. At length, succeeding in securing his character wigs and cash box, he determined to leave the building. On reaching the main salon where the wax figures stood, he found great confusion. Mr. Harrison says that one man had the Jeff Davis effigy in his arms and fought vigorously to preserve the worthless thing, as though it were a gem of rare value. On reaching the balcony, the man, perceiving that either the inanimate Jeff or himself must go by the board, hurled the scarecrow to the iconoclasts in the street. As Jeff made his perilous descent, his petticoats again played him false, and as the wind blew about them, the imposture of the figure was exposed. The flight of dummy Jeff was the cause of great merriment among the multitude, who saluted the queer-looking thing with cheers and uncontrollable laughter. The figure was instantly seized and bundled off to a lamppost in Fulton Street, near St. Paul's Church, and there formally hanged. The whales, of course, burned alive. At an early stage of conflagration, the large panes of glass in the great whale tank were broken to allow the heavy mass of water to flow upon the floor of the main salon, and the Leviathan natives of Labrador, when last seen, were floundering in mortal agony, to the inexpressible delight of the unfeeling boys who demanded a share of the blubber. The large cage in which were confined the anacondas, pythons, and other gigantic specimens of the Ophidian tribe was capsized, and the tenants thereof were suffered to wander whither their fancy led. Naturally enough, they took advantage of their newfound liberty, and soon were traveling down the stairs to the infinite astonishment and alarm of the multitude. True to his taciturn habits, the alligator failed to make the slightest attempt at escape. While the fire was at its height, a grotesquely shaped substance sprang from the roof of the building and landed in the street. That's the kangaroo, shouted the multitude, and a rush was made for the place where the object alighted. But it was not the kangaroo. It was a pair of leggings formerly worn by Big Thunder, an aboriginal Indian, during his sojourn at the museum. The crowd felt much disappointed at finding no kangaroo, and a general exclamation of sadness was uttered by the spectators. The firemen, in their endeavors to save the property, exhibited a penchant for curiosities. One fireman was seen emerging from the building with a stuffed owl in his hands. Another fastened on one of the wax figures, and it is said that Mr. and Mrs. Tom Thumb and Baby are among those things that in this way disappear. 
Also, that several other curiosities have been saved and will doubtless be restored to Mr. Barnum. The fat woman and the giant and giantess made their way out without difficulty, but hastened to conceal themselves from public exhibition in their hotel. At 1.30, a cry burst from the concourse which stood in the square at Fulton and Vasey Street that a woman was being saved from the fire. Curiosity was on tiptoe to discover that lady and behold the apparition by which she was saved from a terrible death. The crowd did not have to wait long to witness the coveted scene of sacrifice and gallantry, for a lady, attired in a pink dress, was handed down from story to story by parties inside. The form waved to and fro as if in a faint, and the assemblage became more and more interested in her fate. As it was lowered, loud cheers arose from the multitude who rushed, despite the effort of the police, to see the woman. They were, however, doomed to disappointment, for the woman proved to be one of the valuable wax figures which stood near the well-known form of Daniel Lambert the Giant and the somewhat baby-faced Lord Byron. The involuntary deception created great merriment among the people. At about this time, some person shouted, The snakes are loose! And at the same moment, a terrible explosion was heard, and the horror-stricken throng fell back in a fearful panic. The real cause of this panic was the whistling of a steam fire engine on the corner of Vasey Street and Broadway. The whistle, or rather scream, of this engine is a capital counterfeit of the shriek of an elephant when in fear of danger, and the similarity caused some thoughtless persons to cry out, The elephant is coming! That added to the snake alarm was enough. With one impulse, the compact mass faced about and ran in any direction available. We stood in the doorway of a small store in the Astor House, and in a twinkling we saw and felt something very like a whirlwind. A surging sea of heads of pale faces, staring eyes, outstretched arms, and the sound of inarticulate cries of anguish. In two minutes it was over, and in that time, a hundred people were more or less injured, but we believe none were killed. There were several minor panics during the fire. The sound of an explosion was heard about 1.30, and immediately at least a thousand people scampered out of the way. A great number of men fell down, and at least a hundred hats were lost. Boys were even going about with half a dozen hats on their hands, and more hapless men were hatless. A report was started at one time that an escaped lion from the museum was rushing down Broadway, and the result was a sudden flight of a few nervous people who, imparting their terror to others, brought about quite a stampede. The only curiosities reported to have been saved beside the fat woman, who was taken in charge by a policeman, were the live seals and a case of rare coins. Owing to the rapid progress of fire, great haste was required in removing anything, Accordingly, portions of theatrical wardrobe, which had been used in Camille and the various melodramas and farces which were acted daily in the lecture room, were thrown from the window to the street. The burdens taken away were many and various. Birds, pictures, glass machines, heavy trunks stuffed with foreign fowl, and other articles were seen for a few minutes at all points near the museum in the hands of those who had just left it. Mr. Barnum constantly labored to keep his museum up to the times, adding daily to the collection of curiosities and varying and increasing the other attractions, and his efforts were rewarded by a constant increase in popularity. People knew that there was a good deal of humbug about the place, but this they good-naturedly accepted and laughed at, 
while the intrinsic value of the museum as a whole was generally acknowledged. There was no place in the city where an equal amount of rational entertainment could be obtained at a price which was within the reach of the poorest, and its destruction has occasioned universal regret. And now, a bit of poetry as we close our show with Carswell's Corner. Hello. Tonight's poem is by the British journalist, lyricist, and poet, Harry Graham. He is best known for the cheerfully cruel verses collected in his 1898 book, Ruthless Rhymes. Wyatt Fun. My son Augustus, in the street one day, was feeling quite exceptionally merry. A stranger asked him, can you show me, pray, the quickest way to Brompton Cemetery? The quickest way? You bet I can, says Gus, and push the fellow underneath a bus. Whatever people say about my son, he does enjoy his little bit of fun. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode as I've mentioned, and uh, other rewards include access to the Patreon blog, downloads of the show Soundscapes, uh, what you hear under the narration, show scripts, uh, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bone and sickle candle, and unique hand-packed mystery kits. And I'd like to thank our December crop of recent patrons, Ian Garofalo, James Burkhart, and Julie Hernandez. Conan Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.